So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 28, and it's page 1155 of the church Bibles. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about, about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Thanks for reading. It's uh, really nice to be with you. Thanks for the big warm welcome. Thanks to uh, old friends for the house. It's great. Uh, one of the benefits of being part of a little church network like Commission, things like this, we do things together. Uh, pastors can uh, support one another. Ash, one of your pastors, was with us at Balham this morning. Um, all, all of us today, doing these little pulpit swaps, are preaching on the theme of hope. I didn't think of doing the same passage and then just nicking Ash's sermon from this morning. So I've done a different passage. Uh, but we've been singing very, very confidently 
tonight about hope, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So let me pray that as we look at this passage, uh, that that will sink into our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the Bible holds out an amazing hope to us. Uh, A hope beyond the grave, a hope that uh, is unbreakable, unshakable if we will only understand it. And we pray, Father, that this morning, looking at this passage, uh, would refresh us as we start 2015 in that extraordinary hope. Help us to to grasp it afresh, to take hold of it, be thrilled by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I came across a book recently called Will I See You in Heaven? And it was a fascinating book. I saw it on a a shelf in a bookshop, and the author of the book had written to a bunch of well-known people, celebrities from uh, journalism and acting and all sorts of other fields, asking for their response to that question. Will I see you in heaven? So I picked it up and bought it. It looked quite interesting. Here are a a few samples. Broad range of reactions. Uh, Some of them uh, quite sceptical. Spike Milligan wrote, I have a problem. I would like to believe in heaven and an afterlife, but I can find no evidence for it. A lot of the answers, though, weren't sceptical. They just came across as sort of flummoxed. Uh, Jeremy Paxman, not a man generally given to being flummoxed, Um, said, I truly hope there is a heaven, but I can't imagine it. So Derek Jacobi, the actor, said, it would indeed be heavenly to know now, beyond any doubt, what, if anything, happens to us after death. But he couldn't say any more. Sean Connery completely ducked the question. He said, my thoughts right now are so concentrated on the film at hand that it is difficult for me to formulate any words that I feel worthy. He's sort of thinking... He's been retired for a while now. Maybe he's had a bit more time to, uh, to think. Uh, Arthur Salzberger, who was the former publisher of the New York Times, was a bit more honest. He said, until I received your letter, I'd not given much serious thought to heaven. I do hope that I shall be included. Isn't it amazing that we can be so caught up in the things of this life? I mean, I'm sure Arthur Salzberger was incredibly knowledgeable on many, many topics. And yet he admitted, I've just, I've just not given it any thought. John Cleese, last quote, uh, simply wrote this. I'm afraid I'm going to decline your invitation, not just because of lack of time, but because on a few minutes' contemplation this morning, I realise I've got nothing to say. And I've learned that under these conditions, it is better to shut up. Honest. I I guess it's no surprise uh, in our society, in our culture, to hear people who make no claim to be Christians expressing scepticism. Uh, or uncertainty about the idea of life after death. That's just the culture, the air that we breathe, really. Uh, We're used to hearing that expressed all the time in the media around us. If you're someone uh, here investigating Christianity, you might be sympathetic to some of the views that we've just heard. But I, I wonder if you were surprised when we had the reading just now from 1 Corinthians 15. Because these guys, the recipients of, of the letter to Corinth, were Christians. Uh, Paul was writing to uh, Christians in a major church in the city of Corinth, which he'd personally been involved in planting. And these Christians were struggling to believe in the hope of being raised from the dead. It's funny, sometimes I think we Christians uh, today imagine that uh, if we'd been Christians in some previous era, less sophisticated, less scientific, it would have been much easier to believe than it is today. 
But actually, you dig into the Greek culture that was around uh, in those days, and you find that most people there said, resurrection is impossible. They put it a bit differently from, from the way we would say it. Greek philosophies tended to believe in a sort of detached spiritual realm that sort of absorbed you when you die. Uh, but it wasn't really an afterlife. If you were into Homer or Plato or Aristotle or the various myths of the Greek and Roman gods, they were just adamant that there is no physical resurrection. Uh, Cicero summed it up like this. He said, the physical body is a prison house. Necessary for the moment, but nobody in their right mind, having got rid of it, would want it or anything like it back again. And uh, Aeschylus, have you heard of Aeschylus, an ancient dramatist uh, from Athens, said, Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Well, that could be Richard Dawkins, couldn't it? Uh, any number of materialist writers today put things in those terms. The cultural pressures on Christians today to give up on the hope of resurrection life are nothing new. So let me ask, before we dig into the detail of the the chapter, how certain are you that you will rise from the dead? I'm not interested in what you think you should say when you're chatting to Christians. Um, What is your response to that question at the deepest level of your mind? How do you feel about it in your most honest moments, your, your most dark moments, your fearful times, when you're most distracted? And how does your secret answer to that question affect how you live? Because in 2015, as the year gets going, uh, we'll make choices on the basis of our answer to that question, our secret answer. Uh, and if we're not sure, if we're uncertain, about the resurrection hope in Christ. It'll be very difficult this coming year to give ourselves to Christ uh, sacrificially in terms of time or money or energy. I mean, why would you? If there's no resurrection hope, why would you? But on the other hand, if we're sure, if we know where we're going when we die, that'll transform us, that'll free us to make all kinds of choices that we wouldn't necessarily make if all we've got is this life. So this matters a lot. This could make big differences to your decisions in 2015. So let's dive in. We're mostly looking at verses 12 to 28. But I just briefly want to summarise verses 1 to 11. Uh, And I've done it in that, that lengthy bullet point on your handout. Christ was raised from the dead physically in history, seen by many eyewitnesses in fulfilment of scripture. Paul just runs through these basics. He's saying in verse 1, he wants to remind them of the gospel, the good news that he preached to them. Verse 3, these are the things of of first importance. And this is what they are. Verse 3, Christ died. Verse 4, he was buried. Verse 5, he was raised from the dead. And then the next set of verses, he appeared to loads of people. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, who can confirm his resurrection as eyewitnesses. Loads of verses about these resurrection appearances of Jesus because that is exactly where Paul wants to spend his time in the rest of this chapter. So Christ was raised from the dead, physically, in history, seen by many eyewitnesses in fulfilment of scripture. And Paul's saying that is, that is at the heart of Christianity. It's central to the essentials. It is a centre point of what the apostles taught, what Christians believe. But notice uh, the past tense in verse 11. This is what you 
believed. Not anymore for some of them. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, I don't know how much you know the letter to the Corinthians. Um, at this point, if you've read other bits, it's tempting to sort of slap your forehead and go, mm-hmm, idiot Corinthians. Uh, you get everything wrong, because they do. Uh, it's a letter addressing thing after thing after thing that they get wrong, and this is one of the biggest clangers they dropped, frankly. But don't be too quick to write them off. Because look at Christianity in the West today. For hundreds of years now, in churches, starting in theological colleges, but in many mainstream denominations, there's been a a sort of movement which says you can strip all of the supernatural stuff out of Christianity. Uh, You can get rid of the miraculous. You can get rid of any sign of supernatural intervention by God. And you can still be left with a thing worth having. There's been a movement that's been saying that for hundreds of years. You'll still have a religion. You'll still have a set of morals or ethics. And quite often the very last thing to go is the resurrection of Jesus. Because people realise to some extent how central and crucial it is. But eventually the claim is Christianity without resurrection is still a thing. It's still worth having. It's still good. Here's a quote from one church minister who says, The miracle of a bodily resurrection is something I rejected without moving away from its basic idea. I'm always trying to say that. Uh, What I mean is that we can reach the lowest points of our lives of going deep into a place that feels like death and then find our way out again. That's the story the resurrection now tells me, he says. And we express it in community and through the compassion of others. And what do you make of that? Does that attract you in any way? Some of us here might be uh, ready to throttle that minister for so badly representing the gospel, and perhaps we should. But others might think, well, yeah, in a way, that sits comfortably. Uh, It's sort of easier to mesh with the values of our culture. It's not such a leap from what the rest of the people out there think. Maybe we can extract something good from Christianity without needing to believe things like the resurrection. And in this passage, Paul talks back to the Corinthians on that point. And he says, okay, let's run with that. Let's run with that for a little bit. Let's explore what that would look like, a Christianity without resurrection." And so for a few verses, he enters into that possibility uh, in in what I've called, in verse 12 to 19, nightmare. What if Christ wasn't raised? And he dwells on that at length. And it's going to be ugly as we look at it. Uh, And then, verse 20 to 28, uh, our last point, we'll come back to reality. But Christ was raised. So first, uh, verses 12 to 19, nightmare. Imagine a Christianity without resurrection. What if Christ wasn't raised? The first thing he does in verse 13 is make sure we're consistent. Uh, No resurrection means no resurrection. Not for you, not for me, not for Jesus Christ himself. No physical resurrection means no resurrected Jesus. So what remains of his body, his dry skeleton, whatever bits of DNA are still clinging to it, must lie buried somewhere 
unmarked, undiscovered in the Middle East. When his heart stopped, it never started again. When his bruised and bloodshot eyes closed, they never opened again. When his limbs went stiff with rigor mortis, they never moved again. And so it will be with all of us, says Paul in this nightmare. Let us be consistent. If there's no resurrection, there is no resurrection. And Paul runs with that. And he gives us quick fire bullet points, six of them, that I'll take through in, in quick succession. And they are terrible. Terrible things. First, in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Now, do you hear that? Our preaching is useless. Not just slightly misguided in places. Not uh, just useful sometimes and less useful at others. Utterly, entirely useless. Paul says that the Christian faith, stripped of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not still a good thing. It's not still worthwhile or valuable in some sense. Uh, it is, it's a message that is centred on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if he wasn't raised, the entire thing collapses like a pack of cards. It becomes nothing. Second, verse 14, the flip side of that. If our preaching is useless, then so is your faith. You've, you've put your trust, your faith, in a message that is useless. Or as verse 17 puts it, your faith is futile. If, didn't, if Jesus didn't rise, then we're clinging on to something pointless and worthless. Whatever dregs of Christianity that we're still dabbling with are just not worthy of our attention. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're just utterly empty. Third bullet point, verse 15. The authors of the Bible are liars. Paul writes about himself and his fellow apostles who all claim to be eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. And he says... We're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. I don't know if you've come across today, it's very popular to say the Bible isn't the word of God, it's the words of people who wrote down their explorations of God. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, and we can just sift through it and find the good bits and benefit from those. See how Paul leaves absolutely no space for that view. If Jesus wasn't raised, Paul says, be absolutely clear on this, the apostles are liars. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel writers, they all said Jesus rose from the dead. If he didn't, they're liars. Peter, Paul, the letter writers, exactly the same. Of course, this has enormous implications for, for Christian preachers today, people like me and Andy and Ash. Uh, if Jesus is not raised, then all Bible preaching is based on lies. Now, I don't know if you sort of recoil a little bit at the strength of that, but this is what Paul is saying, isn't it? We, we want to sort of soften it and sentiment, sentimentalise it some way. Paul says, please don't do that. Whatever you do, don't build your life on lies. No Christian should want to do that. Fourth bullet point, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus wasn't raised, then his death for our sins was not effective. It was not accepted by God. So he didn't take the punishment we deserve. He didn't carry our guilt to the cross. He didn't win forgiveness and freedom and life for us. Nothing could rip the heart out of the Christian message more than that. 
There's no grace or mercy available from God. We're still in our sins, left to suffer and die for our own guilt. It is a nightmare, isn't it? Fifth bullet point, verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Now this is the nightmare at its darkest and most terrible. Christians look to Christ for hope beyond the grave. So much that they sometimes call dying, falling asleep. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, It's a lovely image. This verse uses that language. A dying Christian merely falls asleep to be woken again one day in glory in the presence of the Lord. But if Jesus did not rise, it is not just falling asleep. He will not be there for us. When our hearts stop and our eyes darken and our limbs become lifeless, Jesus is no better off than we are if there's no resurrection. I used to live in East London and uh, work not far from Tower Hamlet's cemetery. And uh, on the, they've got great big impressive old gravestones there. And you often see in uh, gravestones in this country fantastic carvings of Christian hope written on some of these old gravestones. None of them are true if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The grave cannot confine me here. When Christ doth call, I must appear. It's not true if Jesus didn't rise. My flesh shall slumber in the ground till the last of trumpets joyfully sound. Then burst the chains with sweet surprise and in my Saviour's image rise. It's not true if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. If Christ hasn't risen, all those hopes are false. Sixthly, in summary, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I mentioned my brother-in-law earlier. Uh, I know some of my friends and family pity me. Uh, Some of them show it more than others. Uh, I guess if they were honest, and my brother-in-law sometimes is, uh, they would say something like this. You, Simon, and the billions of other Christians out there are giving yourselves to deluded, superstitious nonsense. You worship a dead human being as God. Your hope for resurrection life after this life is the hope of gullible fools because you trust in a dead man to give you life. I pity you, Christians, for giving your energy and hopes and values and sometimes your lives to something so utterly useless. And if Christ wasn't raised, they would be absolutely right. That's the nightmare. (laughs) Please listen to Paul here. It's painful reading, we've got to hear it though. There's nothing left of Christianity if Jesus didn't rise. It is useless lies which will fail us in the end. And those who follow it are to be pitied. And if you're not a Christian at the moment, you need to find out for yourself if Jesus rose from the dead. And if he didn't, Walk away. If you're a Christian, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, walk away. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you sort of, (laughs) these thoughts, these nightmares float around in your head from time to time. You're a Christian, but there's a danger you could spend 2015 wondering if the nightmare could be true. What if there's no hope? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the Bible is lies and we're not forgiven and when we die, that's that? We all face doubts from time to time. But if you, if you harbour those thoughts, if you let them dominate for a while, 
and that you don't deal with them, what is that going to do to you in 2015? You'll live for today because that's all you'll have. If you keep coming to church and calling yourself a Christian, you'll feel like a fraud. You'll, you'll, you'll secretly resent the Bible teaching from the front uh, because it eats up the, the little time that you've got. You'll resent the time you, you give to church. You'll resent any challenge to give time and energy and money for Christ because it will feel like time wasted and energy wasted and money wasted. And deep down you'll be afraid. Uh, afraid of death. Afraid that you're wasting your life by being a Christian. Shall we move on? What do you think? From the nightmare to the reality. Because the nightmare is horrible. But verse 20 is wonderful. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, says Paul. Nightmare over. Uh, So here we go for the final point, verse 20 to 28. Reality. Christ was raised. In verse 20, that word indeed could be translated in fact or in reality. This is moving on from the horror of unreality to, from the nightmare to the reality. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. Perhaps the most important and wonderful fact of all of history. And Paul's point here is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. He's the first to be raised to new life. And countless millions will one day follow him. So see if you can follow the logic of uh, verses 20 down to 23. Paul says with huge confidence in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. This first fruits idea is obviously important. It comes up again in verse 23, where it says, uh, each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And look, we're city types. First fruits doesn't mean a huge amount to us. Uh, let me uh, help us through that mystery with some agricultural awareness. Uh, if you're growing crops, I'm led to believe, uh, all kinds of things can go wrong. Lots of things. Uh, too much rain, not enough rain. Too much sun, not enough sun. Uh, crop disease, swarms of pests, bad frost, uh, whatever. It's a very uncertain business, even with today's technology. So it's a huge relief when uh, the first fruits become ripe for harvest. Uh, We have harvest festival. In Bible times, they had first fruits festival, a time of massive joy because the harvest was was succeeding. Uh, The first fruits were were right there in front of them, being eaten at the festival to prove the success of the harvest. A bit of poignant uh, trivia for you. The first fruits festival took place on the 16th day of the month of Nisan. Jesus was raised on the 16th day of the month of Nisan. Paul is saying this, Jesus' resurrection, amazing, miraculous as it was, was just the start. It's the first fruits of a massive harvest. As verse 21 says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's the proof of the future global harvest of people raised from the dead. So if we're trusting in Jesus, we are the harvest of which Jesus' resurrection is the proof, the guarantee. The certainty of the resurrection of Jesus means we can have absolute certainty of our future resurrection. How certain can we be? Well, listen to verse uh, 21. For death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
4 verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, how, how certain are you that people die? Do you ever doubt that one day you'll cease to be alive in this world? Since Adam, one in one people have died. We'd have to be insanely unobservant not to be aware of that. Today, the very oldest people alive in the world were born, I guess, in the late 1890s. And you could probably count them on the fingers of your hands. From the 1880s, or before that, there's no one. The march of death is certain. That is very obvious. But here is the confidence a Christian can have. As in Adam, all die, which is an undisputed fact known by every sane person in the world. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Resurrection for believers is just as certain as our death. Nothing should stop us holding those two things together with complete assurance. I will die and I will rise. And I know that because Christ has been raised. Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation. You and I, if we trust in him, are the harvest to come. This was uh, brilliantly poetically put by uh, G.K. Chesterton, author from uh, the early 20th century, who wrote this. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways they realised the new wonder, but even they hardly realised that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. I love that. Now as the passage finishes, things get pretty huge. Uh, We haven't got time for many of the details, but 24 to 28. Uh, Look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion and authority and power. Paul's spelling out the final destiny of the entire universe. He says the whole cosmos is heading towards a a great day when God will finally rule unopposed as uh, our glorious and loving Father. It'll be a wonderful day, a day of victory when all enemies are gone and defeated. They must all be defeated. And we find in verse 25 that Jesus has been given the task of accomplishing uh, that defeat of God's enemies. That is God's great plan for history, the defeat of his enemies through Christ. And all of this is fantastic stuff that we could dwell on at length, but we have no time to do that. But verse 26 shows us why this is so relevant to the argument. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, says Paul. In other words, the defeat of death is central to God's victory. If death was allowed to continue, if if death was allowed to keep on wielding the power of the grave over us to succeed as an enemy of God, then God's whole plan for the universe would have failed. So for God himself, it is vitally important that those who belong to him are saved from that last enemy, saved from death. Uh, They have to be raised to new life. We have to be raised to new life. Otherwise, God's plan is doomed. And that completely guarantees our our resurrection. As Paul follows through the argument through in verse 27 and 28, he shows how Jesus has done all this for God the Father. God the Son will bring about a total victory 
and then present the entire perfected kingdom to God the Father. And the end result is that last phrase in verse 28, that God may be all in all. And he's made our resurrection, the defeat of our death, a vital part of that great result. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you Google that sentence, about two-thirds of the results come from the Bible. About one-third come from Harry Potter. Uh, In the final book, uh, Harry finds his parents' graves and uh, discovers the inscription on it, the last enemy to be conquered is death. And uh, J.K. Rowling uh, was very consciously borrowing from the biblical worldview when she wrote that. Within the world of Harry Potter, uh, the enemies are overcome and death is beaten by, ultimately, what? Plot spoiler, so cover your ears if you don't want to know. But the, the enemies are defeated by the death and resurrection of Harry Potter. Harry's resurrection guarantees life for his friends. That's the fictional world. In our real world, the resurrection of Jesus is what guarantees life for us. So this is the reality. This is the fantastic reality that we live in as 2015 gets underway. That Jesus Christ has conquered death. That death will be destroyed. Your death, my death, if we trust in Christ, will be destroyed so that we can share resurrection life with Jesus. Can we, can we just admit for a moment that that changes everything? Everything. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Corinthians, Londoners, don't resign yourselves to death. You don't have to. You live in the real world where Christ has, in historical fact, risen from the dead. He lives, which means we too can live. Those gravestone carvings, they're not lies. They speak wonderful truth. The grave cannot confine me here. When Christ doth call, I must appear. That is true. My flesh shall slumber in the ground till the last of trumpets joyful sound. Then burst the chains with sweet surprise and in my Saviour's image rise. That is true. That is our hope. Our certain hope. And what's 2015 going to look like? If you live in the light of that hope, what risks might you take for God, knowing that your life is safe in his hands? What sacrifices might you be free, liberated to make uh, of your time and your energy and your money for Christ? Because you're free to do so by the solid hope that we have in Jesus. You can spend the rest of the year working that out. You're liberated to do so because Jesus is risen. One last quote from that book of celebrities commenting on heaven as we close. This time it's Billy Graham, the, uh, the famous preacher and evangelist from the US. He says, heaven will be the perfection we've always longed for. And the most thrilling thing about it is that Jesus Christ will be there. I will see him face to face. I will have the opportunity to talk directly to him and to ask him a hundred questions that I've never had answered It is exhilarating to know, he says, that Jesus Christ will meet us at the end of life's journey. The joy of being with him forever is beyond the ability of any writer to describe. Praise God. We don't live in the nightmare. We live in the reality where Christ is risen and we will rise. And whatever else happens in 2015, nothing can take that hope from us.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the facts, the unchangeable facts of history, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus was seen alive by countless people, that he ascended to heaven and will come again in glory. Father, thank you that that changes absolutely everything for us. Thank you that it means death is not the end. Thank you that it means we can have unshakable confidence in the hope you've given us in Christ. That there is a place in heaven at your side reserved for everyone who puts their trust in you. And Lord, we pray that our trust would be in you this year. And we pray that that would liberate us from living for now, from living from the, the fleeting things of this world. Liberate us to live sacrificially for you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Simon, ever so much. What a great passage to reflect on right at the start of the year. What a wonderful message. Thank you.